Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Hey everybody, thank you Joseph for the great introduction and welcome back to our guest, Julie Alexander, and we're talking about animals, genetics, and why Julie and I are in favor of open registries. And Julie, we had been talking about the complex and fascinating role of color and how it relates to traits. And we had been talking about the fact that the gene for red hair brings with it the, uh, a modification on the immune system, neurological changes. It's not just the color. Oh, and you were talking about uh, salicylate. Salicylate. Yeah, salicylate. Um, basically, it's aspirin-related compound sensitivity. It's my body can't clear them as fast. So I wind up becoming like uh, getting almost like an aspirin toxicity, but it can happen to things like eating too many tomatoes because they contain compounds that are related to it. Yeah. Fascinating. So you left us last time with a tease about talking about fur foxes and their colors. The Bellier of fur fox experiment happened when a geneticist got shipped to Siberia and the fur foxes had the silver foxes had been bred in captivity for quite a while, but they were still very wild, very difficult to handle. So he was going to try to breed foxes that were easier to handle. He succeeded, but ruined them for the fur trade. Interesting. Only one criteria the ones that were the least afraid of the handlers, the ones that would be less likely to race to the back of the cage or bite people, they might even come up a little bit, but the ones that were least likely to run away from the handlers were bred to other ones, the most distantly related as possible. He was trying to keep the genes, uh, he was trying to avoid inbreeding too much breeding to other ones that were less likely. In seven generations, he came up with something that was becoming a pretty good pet and it looked a lot like a border collie. They yeah, that, didn't that have, famous star coloration. They were coming up with a piebald coat. Uh, it was wavy. Uh, the tail would curl. They would start to bark. The face was shorter, but they were having markings that was like, a lot of stuff with the border collies with having like big black and white patches. Well, and in it, particular, like the star color pattern is literally white feet, a yes. white mark on the chest, a mm-hmm. white blaze on the nose. Yes. And a lot of times the tip of the tail, I think. Yes. And a white marking, particularly on the chest has been noticed by a lot of wildlife photographers that bears, otters, um, a whole lot of other animals 
that are easier to photograph. They're not as wary of humans will have some sort of white on the chest. Interesting. And in particular, so, and a number of people have said that they found a correlation between some sort of a white spot on a dog or a horse's chest and being a little bit calmer, little just something that's going to be uh, a little bit more amenable to work with. It's not going to be as wary of people. Very interesting. Temple Grandin got into that quite a bit too. That's interesting as well. I haven't run into her work on that. But I have seen lots of stuff that um, is related to color. We talked in the last podcast about what happens when an animal is gray versus red or blue versus red versus fawn versus we didn't specifically talk about liver, but dogs that are chocolate color will, in my experience, often be uh, less amenable to change. Okay. So I'm thinking about my personal experience with Brown Labs and Chesapeake Bay Retrievers. Now, Chesapeake Bay Retriever does not look like a brown lab, if you look at it. And um, they have lots of very unique traits that are not in any of the other hunting dogs I've seen. So most of the hunting dogs, if I think of them, have an occipital crest. And Chessies tend to have kind of a swale on the top of their head. And there's some other traits, uh, gold eyes in a lot of them and mm-hmm. so on that I'm just not used to seeing in hunting dogs. Mm-hmm. And I know that they were uh, bred for, they were called market dogs. They would go and help these guys hunt all these ducks and then they'd take them to market and the dogs would guard the wagons with the ducks in them. That explains a lot of their behavior. They're tougher they're tough they're protective much more so than most yes and we had a couple of dobermans i not dobermans um chesapeake bay retrievers and of all the people i knew i knew about 20 personally uh that lived in various homes and there were only about four of them that lived out their natural lifespans in their became too aggressive. The people just couldn't manage them one way or another. And one of the ones, both of the ones we had came to us because of aggression issues. And um, I ended up with the female and she ended up being very stable. She was severely aggressive but she was willing to change and she became very dependable. So uh, it was all good, but she was a tough critter. Yeah. And again, they were bred for a different function. Yeah. So the, the genes are going to be very different. Uh, you're going to be having a, a different set of traits that are in there. Yeah. And she was bred for that. You know, the, the Chessies were bred for that specific range of brown coat. Okay. And uh, if I think about brown coated dogs, 
most of the ones I think of are more reddish brown, like a lot of the pointers or liver colored. Mm -hmm. They're not that kind of golden brown. Yeah. Which is a darker brown that, well, anyway, we're getting, I'm getting us uh, off the track here. But I, I just find it so interesting that uh, just traits like that, and this is not color, but it's just one little trait, cowlicks. Mm -hmm. Cowlicks in various locations are related to specific traits. Yeah. And the ridge on a Rhodesian Ridgeback. And it, some of the problems that they can run into. Yeah, that, that can be affiliated with uh, changes in the physiology of the spine. So, okay, so we talked about Belyaev. And what did they do? They just quit breeding. Well, no, they've continued the breeding program because of what they were finding out so much about genetics. Oh, okay. I, they so they had kept going with it, um, even though it had ruined it, with, but not for the fur. Um, they were getting to the point when they went down further with it. They were coming up with foxes that were going to do estrus twice a year instead of once a year, um, and just finding again more and more changes that were going on with how friendly they were going to be getting, wagging tails, barking. And they also started doing a flip side of it where they started breeding more and more aggressive ones oh, just to kind of see what was going And so they were creating like hyper fearful, hyper aggressive ones with it. And I don't know how much they had continued that, but they were finding pretty much that, yeah, you can wind up creating um, you know, subsets that are going in the opposite direction and sending them over the top with being aggressive. One thing to bring out on this too is both of these subsets of foxes, if you try to take them and turn them loose in the wild, even if you tried your best to be able to train them how to with it, they do not have a full set of genes of behaviors to be able to survive in the wild. Mm. And this is where you're gonna run into problems with captive breeding for endangered animals. Yeah. The ones that can, prove, can breed in captivity have probably also lost some of the wariness traits that they're going to need. And you'd have to take some of these and be able to try to breed them with wild stock to be able to re-enlarge that gene pool. It's already a restricted gene pool. Ugh, that brings to mind something that I don't even want to think about right now. Uh, Miami Seaquarium lost the fight for Lolita. And, and so they're going to try and turn her loose. Yeah are congratulating themselves on the fact that finally the 50-year-old Lolita will be returned to her natural range where she doesn't know anybody and she's already geriatric and all the local whales are starving to death. Yeah. They cannot even maintain viable births. Since I've been following them, the number has gone from 85 to something like 73. And now you're going to add the pressure on the local population and reintroduce an animal that hasn't had to make a living that way 
for 50 years, this is going to most probably result in the terrified, painful death of Lolita. Uh, it's the road to hell paved with good intentions. People don't have a clue what they're doing. They think they're doing something kind and they don't have any idea of the fallout. Yeah. And she's going to pay for it. About it. Now you brought up a really important point about the fundamental problem with dogs, which was that they were bred, they were descended from a specific animal, either wolf or related to a wolf. But their Asian wolves are considered their closest forebearer now from the DNA testing. Okay. And the way you put it was that their genes are mostly a subset of wolf genes. Yeah. So and a lot of the wolf genes have been lost for the various breeds. Yeah. So it's a subset of what is required to keep wolves going. And then you said there was one source of new material to expand their genetic pool. You want to touch on that? I, you mean the, the new gene that they had found for the eyes? Yeah, let's talk about that one. But you were you said specifically there are sometimes mutations which add to genetic variability. Okay, and that's one of them, that dogs somehow picked up a gene or several genes to get a new muscle around their eyes, making their eyes more communicative with us than wolves are. Hmm. They've got a different, they've got a new muscle that wolves do not have. So it that's something like new. It, uh, expression mm -hmm. nuance. Yes, they can be much more expressive. It's more like they can raise their eyebrows much more or something with it, but they can be far more expressive with their eyes yeah. than wolves can. So, but mostly the, and then with some other variations, I don't think they believe that at this point that DNA has shown that there's anything like uh, um, jackals uh, or coyote type. Um, okay, uh, so what's the a other jackal? Wildlife. I don't know that. Uh, the, at one point, somebody thought they were thinking that golden jackals uh, were also uh, part of the dog gene pool. I think they've pretty much ruled that out now. That is that some pretty, kind of wild carnivore uh, dog? Yeah, yeah. Uh, wild, a, a golden jackal. I haven't run uh, into it. Yeah. So the the jackals they thought were at some point because they also would have like a more rounded pupil, um, a more rounded eye, like dogs compared to what the wolf eye would oh. look like, with I'm a little go bit look more. That up with a little bit more slanted one, um, who was coming up with uh, that one? Who was the guy that did uh, some of the early work with imprinting geese behaviors? Oh. Conrad Lawrence. Yeah, there we go. I think he thought that dogs had some golden jackal in them, and I think that's been disproved. Oh, I was uh, misprocessing what you said, golden jackal. I was hearing yeah. like with peas. Uh, okay, no, golden no, jackal. I have heard of jackals. I hope yeah. to reassure everybody. So they're they're pretty certain that it's it's that dogs are pretty much descendants of wolves and maybe some earlier common ancestors that are gone, but they're not part coyote. They're not part 
uh, African wild dog. They're not part of New Guinea singing, singing dogs. Well, New Guinea singing dogs are more closely related to dingoes. And so, you know, dingoes are actually a little bit different. And I think dingoes are a little bit more closely related to Asian doles. Um, but pretty much look dog, like dogs are pretty much subsets of wolves. Okay. And so then in that, with this huge variation, what it's taught us of the power of subsets of genes on the appearance and the behavior. Yeah. So they give us this beautiful way to be able to study the effects of genetics and form, function, the behavior. And sadly, they can also get to the point where it's predicting the problems. Yes. And you pointed out that you have the subset of the genes from the wolves, you have the new mutations, and all the other changes over history have been from genetic restrictions. Yes. Like there, it's deletions. They found out with the fur foxes because they've been able to see this so fast and they can now study the epigenetics. They're finding out that what's happening is a lot of these traits are sub-adult traits. It's puppy traits, it's young mm. adult traits. Um, but the muzzle never grows is, uh, I, it's a shorter muzzle. It doesn't grow as long. And they're finding that a lot of these traits are, they're silencing the traits that would turn on adult form and function. Mm. Uh, other traits that are happening with the, a critical one for domestication is the adrenal glands are smaller and the whole adrenal system. Uh, and is, so this is one of these that, things where it cut out the adrenal glands the, are smaller and the whole system that like the whole HPA hypothalamus pituitary adrenal access, the adrenal glands are not as easily activated. They don't get into fight flight freeze as quickly. So the adrenals tend to be smaller, but the whole reactivity of the system is less reactive and yeah, it's a critical so it, thing they found across with domestication critical across the board yeah absolutely and the term that in general refers to this tendency is neotenizing neoteny yes yeah and so it's the, the, the sub-adult traits right the ears that don't stand up and yes. uh, some of the other ones you talked about and every time we breed to restrict the genes, we lose that genetic material. Mm -hmm. So you can't reverse back to it. You have to get it from someplace else. You have to somehow bring it back in, even by breeding wolves which with dogs, which is highly controversial. But um, as we're talking about this, I like, and I know you do, we stock our pantries, right? Mm -hmm. We like to not have to go to the grocery store in case there's a problem with the weather or something. Genes are your body's pantry because you never know when you need to dip back in there yes. and reaccess and reactivate a trait 
that you haven't been using for a while. And that's very similar to what von Stefanitz, who started the German Shepherd, he refused to let them close the gene pool. And he was saying that the breeds that they came from, the herding breeds that they came from were like a well pool Mm. that we would have to dip into at times. Yeah, absolutely. To refresh it. So this was pretty much what he was saying. This is, we have to be able to dip into these gene pools. Yeah, to do otherwise would be to say like, let's say you had a beautiful, uh, I forget what they call it, cob house that you Mm -hmm. made with mud and adobe and willow sticks and everything else. And then it starts to disintegrate. You got to bring some new mud in. Yes. You can't just keep pacing up the dust that fell on the ground. So that is beautifully, uh, it's beautifully clear to um, think about. But but as we rarefy things, one of the one of the problems I've seen is in addition to people going after specific traits that they don't necessarily know what the effect will be, they will also summarily take out dogs from breeding because they show some recessive traits and everybody has recessive genes and the less material you have the more we show the recessives and then if you take those animals out of breeding those recessives are gone but so is all the protection that they gave like there's a reason that recessives are supported in the population. Von Willebrand's factor was one that happened with Dobermans. Okay, so first of all, they came out with this genetic test for it. Everybody's going great, it's wonderful. We can get rid of Von Willebrand's factor because we won't breed the dogs that have it. Well, unfortunately, there were a lot of really good dogs that they stopped breeding simply because they were a carrier. Yeah. They weren't even affected. Um, And they said, well, we're not going to do that. And with care, even a a full affected dog, if you breed it to uh, a non-carrier, you're going to wind up with dogs that are carriers, but they won't be affected. We've got Von Willebrands in my family and we're all alive. And it's, yes, it's in many mammals. Why is this gene there? Is it something that could protect against strokes? What is it doing for the gene pool? We need to remember too, there's a difference between Mendelian genetics and population genetics. Population genetics doesn't give a damn that much whether or not you know, just the individual survives. They want to know what's going to make the group with it. And a lot of times having behavioral traits that are across the board, you need some animals that are more wary, some that are bolder. Right. And the ones that are wary, they may be stressed more often, may not be real proactive for them, but it's important for the population. Yeah, if everybody's perfect, so-called, then they are the same, you know, like Stepford wives, right? Yes. We have to have diversity in order to have special gifts and special traits to contribute back to the community. Well, even in um, various breeds of dogs, 
there'll be specific differences they want. I think Steve Lindsay got into some of the dog's beagles. There are some that will have a central eye spot and some that will have a streak in the retina. Right. Ones with a streak can see motion of a rabbit running faster. The other ones may be able to narrow in on it, but are also the ones that are more paying attention with their nose. If yeah, you want to like, get a lot of rapids, bring a lot of rapids home, you need some of each. Exactly, because the ones that see detail are used to find the rabbits in the brush and flush them. And the other ones are used to bring them chase down. Them down. Chase them down. Yes. That is a great example. Well, we With live, livestock guardians, you can have, there's almost like three different types of jobs that they'll have. You'll have, you might have the big male hanging out in the shade. He's okay. the heavy hitter. You'll have a couple of females hanging around the flocks. They hear something and it's like the big male will shoot up and then you get the female who's sort of like the active guardian. They're taking off going out to tackle the predator and you've got one that's hanging behind to make sure nobody sneaks up to snatch mm. what's going on with it. You have to have the different jobs. Yeah. Working German shepherds in herding, you'll have one dog that's sort of the lead dog and then you'll have a couple of other dogs that are the supporters to make sure that these sheep that are following the shepherd are being kept out of the crops. So you've got one dog that's kind of paying attention to doing the whole thing. And the other ones are almost like taking orders from them. Yeah. They have different sense. jobs. They're supposed well, to be genetically different. Interesting. And, and we see that with people too, right? Some people yeah. are natural leaders and some people are systems and yeah. And we, we need everybody. And this this is another thing that we're uh, working against ourselves if we try to get exactly the same thing every single time. So it's maybe it's good for dog shows if you're going to say this is excellence or this looks like excellence because as soon as we have what looks like excellence, we may have a harder time getting performance excellence. And it's, it's just so much to think about. Well, Julie, we still have a lot of other subjects to explore together. So I hope that I can entice you back to talk again in the future. Was That sounds lovely. I would love it. Is there anything that we didn't cover tonight that you uh, think we should mention before we call it a day? Uh, not at this point in time. So we always seem to cover so much. And if we get going, we'll keep going forever. I know. I know. Guilty as charged. Hey, thank you so much. It was such a lot of fun and I hope everybody enjoys it. Thank you all for coming to spend time with us. And I hope you will uh, subscribe, like, share, and help us get the word out to others because we're all about empowering people to live their best possible lives with animals. Take yes. care. Okay. Good night. Take care. Good night. Hey, fans. Are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to 
Casey Cover on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Cover. Also, give the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.